Well, it's good to be back with you this morning. We are going to be in the uh, book of First John. We'll be in chapter 5. And last Sunday, I unknowingly indicated that I was finishing up a three-part series on the church. And uh, this week, as I was preparing, I thought, no, there's, there's one more message in this series on the church. We talked about the church empowered. We talked about the church equipped for service. Uh, we talked about the church engaged in ministry. And this morning I want to share with you about uh, the church encouraged. And I think it's a timely message for us and for you as a church as you are going to be prepared, are preparing to um, seek God's direction concerning pastoral leadership next Sunday. And when we're dealing with a larger church, it, it seems like there's not that much involvement maybe from a congregation, but there should be, and I, be, I hope there has been, because you've been asked to be praying for your search team, team and for your leadership. That's your responsibility in this process. And I'm going to touch on a few things here toward the end of the message to just kind of bring home uh, how we need to approach things when we look at what God's will is concerning uh, seeking a pastor. Uh, but we need to be encouraged. Uh, we need that encouragement. Last Sunday, we ended talking about Barnabas, the son of encouragement. And the importance of encouraging one another. And specifically in times of uncertainty or unrest, uh, we need to have one another's hands. And we need to walk in tandem with each other in the power of the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at a number of those things in the last few weeks. It's easy to get caught up in our insecurities in our world and to begin to wonder just how close we are uh, to the coming of Christ. And many like uh, the Apostle John wrote at the end of Revelation, even so come, Lord Jesus. We all have a sense of feeling that way. We'd like to believe that he's going to be coming soon. If he came this week, I'm not sure there would be a lot of uh, disagreement with that. But I've always remembered that had he come before I came to faith in Christ, I would have been separated from him for eternity. We don't want him to come and leave people behind that we should be reaching out to, loved ones, family, neighbors, people we work with. We want him to tarry or would like for him to tarry, even though we're going through some challenges, so that we can make the impact and share the gospel with people who need to hear the gospel before he comes. Now, we understand that he has that time already established. But we're supposed to be about the work that he has given us. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, and this is all by introduction, by the way, uh, Jesus said to them, or the scripture says, so when they met together, they asked him just before he ascended, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So it's not our responsibility to worry about when he's going to come back it's our understanding to know he is coming back 
And that's where we find our hope and our strength in him. He will come as a thief in the night. But until he does, we have a responsibility to continue on and to stay focused on the ministries that he has given us. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill the calling that he has given us. So what I want to do this morning is share with you in three Three things in way of encouragement. Uh, the first one will focus on the assurance of our salvation. The second one will be talking about the confidence we have in coming in to the presence of God. And the third uh, area of encouragement is that we can ask anything according to his will and he will give it to us. And that's when I'm going to kind of transition and, and uh, kind of help prepare you for seeking God's will uh, in making a decision about a pastor next Sunday. Let's look at our passage in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. The scripture says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. This is a wonderful passage. And one of the things I love about the theme of the Gospel of John and the letters of the Apostle John is that everything he writes deals with people coming to know Christ as Savior. He wants them to know. He wants to reveal the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Everything he does is wrapped up in this evangelistic theme in the gospel as well as in the letters that he has written. And it's an, an important and necessary doctrine to understand because sometimes we, we have to wonder. In fact, uh, there are many great preachers, nationally known, internationally known preachers who at different times in their life struggled with the concept and the doctrine of the assurance of their salvation. Now before I really get into some of the, the things I want to focus on, there are some very frivolous statements that, that are associated with the assurance of our salvation that I think we need to deal with because the doctrine itself is much deeper than how we lightly use it sometimes. As a matter of fact, that's not the only place. Uh, there, there's a statement that people still use, and I heard it back in 1990s sometime. I was playing golf with a pastor friend of mine, and I had an old golf set that my mother used from the 1960s. It was an old Ram set. It was green bag and, you know, the wooden, wooden heads on it. And, and I was trying to play golf with that. And he said, man, you need, a, you need a new set of golf clubs. And I said, well, we can't afford a new set. And he said, no, no, you need a set. And I said, well, I can maybe, I can talk to, to Trudy about it. And, and he said, hey, listen, it's easier to ask forgiveness than it is permission. And I, I looked at him and I said, you know, that's not the bumper sticker I want to see on the car of the guy that's coming to pick my daughter up for a date. <laughs> a frivolous statement. Now, yes, we get forgiveness when we confess it, but we've lightened that up to a point where it, it kind of favors our ability to do something knowing that we're just going to get forgiven for it. The other one is once saved, always saved. And though there's truth in that, 
Many times it's used in a very frivolous and lighthearted way. This is a very serious doctrine. The doctrine of the assurance of our salvation is, is very, very important. Uh, we need to understand that it's not that lighthearted. Uh, how, we, how we are saved is important to understand in order that we recognize that we are saved and have the assurance of it. The apostle is very intentional in writing to the readers throughout the Gospel of John and specifically in 1 John chapter 5 where he says, I want you to know, or, or I write this that you will know. I want you to understand. In 1 John 4 verses 9 through 10, uh, John writes, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In Titus 3, 5, Paul wrote to Titus and said this, But when the righteousness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things which we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It's all about Christ reaching out to us, doing for us what we could not do in and of ourselves. Listen, this is very easy. If you can earn your salvation, you can lose it. If you think that you somehow can be good enough and do enough good things to try and impress God in your sinfulness, and you think that somehow you've satisfied that with a list of good things against a list of bad things, or you're comparing your life against someone else's life, then as soon as you think that you've got it, you're going to lose it. There's no security. There's no assurance in that at all because it's based on you. The opposite is this, that it's not based upon you. Your sinfulness could never bring you in and of itself before the presence of God. It's what God did for you through Christ in coming to us. He sought us out. He came to us out of his love for us and he offers salvation to those who will put their faith and trust in him as Savior and Lord. The Bible is very clear that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous, not even one, and that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God, a gift given to us, is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 5.8, it says that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's doing it all for us. We're doing nothing for him other than receiving the gift that he gave us. And that we can confess our sin. That we can acknowledge that we are sinners. That we can repent of our sin and say, I don't want to go my way any longer. I want to follow Jesus Christ to the best of my ability. It's a mind change. It's a heart change. And then we, we acknowledge what he did on the cross for us and put our faith in it. That what he did was sufficient to pay the price for the sin that I committed. He's the only one. Who could do that? He's the only one that could pay that price for us. For he was tempted in all ways like we are, but without sin. He went to the cross. He gave his life for us. 
So we confess our sin, we repent it, and we believe. But along with that, we have the assurance that when we are saved, when we are born again, we are born again into his kingdom, into his family, and we are there forever if we truly have trusted him. I love the passage in John 10, 28 and 29 because Jesus said this, I gave them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I remember early on in my walk with Christ, a story, an illustration that was used concerning this passage. And it was about a father and a son climbing up a kind of a steep hill. And the father uh, reached down to take hold of his little son's hand. And the little son, like a good little son would do, would say, no, 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 I'm big enough. Let me hold on to your hand. And as they're climbing up the mountain, all of a sudden the little boy slips. And when he slips, he lets go of his father's hand and kind of falls down and scrapes his knee. The father said, now let me hold your hand. He said, no, 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 I can do this. I'm a big boy now. So they keep climbing, and pretty soon again, the little boy slips, and he lets go of his father's hand. Finally, the father picks him up, brushes him off. He said, now let me hold on to your hand. And when they climb up the mountain, every time the little boy slipped, he never fell because the father held on to him. You see, that's what this story is about. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't hold on to me. The Father holds on to you because you have placed your eternal destiny in my hands. You've trusted what Jesus Christ, my son, did for you on the cross. You confessed your sin. You repented of it. And you put your faith in him. And you have everlasting life. You see, there's that assurance that we have there. Also in our passage John writes, I write these things to you who believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know, that you may have absolute certainty. Now, there is a lot more involved in all of this, certainly. And we could get into different debates about, well, what about a person that that lives for Christ for a while and then falls away? And there's a lot more doctrine involved in this. But let me say this, that when Christ saves you, you are saved. Because it's not based on what you do in response to him. It's what he has done in response to your sin. Martin Luther struggled with this throughout his life until he came across the passage in Romans that talked about being justified by faith and faith alone. He used to chase priests down in in the university every time he thought of a sin. Just think about this. Every time you think about a sin in your life, what if you had to find somebody and go get uh, absolution from them? He was running them ragged. They finally said, just go to your room. Leave us alone. He would go to his room and beat himself with a, with a whip, trying to pay penance for his sin. And he did this constantly. And finally, as he was reading, it came to him. I'm justified by faith, not by works. When Jesus saves you, you are saved. You are his child. You are born again into the kingdom of God. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And you will live with him forever. So we have assurance. We have assurance not based on what we have done, but on what Christ has done in us and through us. The second thing I want to encourage you with is our accessibility to his presence. 
Uh, this, is, this is the confidence, the scripture says in verse 14, the first part that we have in approaching God. Now, I, I kind of broke this uh, verse 14 up a little bit because I wanted to focus on the fact that we as God's children have confidence, boldness, freedom to come into his presence. You know, a lot of times when we're living a life and we're out of God's will and we're making choices that are not uh, uh, obedient to his will in our life, or we know we're living in sin in some sense, we have a tendency to start to withdraw. And instead of being drawn to God, we start pulling away from him. Uh, because that sinfulness, the Holy Spirit convicts us. And we don't want to be around other believers because it, it, it's a convicting thing. We want to kind of isolate. We start running with different people, doing different things to avoid it. But the Bible is very clear here. We have confidence, boldness, freedom to come to the Father who loves us even in the midst of our sinful life because he wants to forgive us. He tells us, if you confess your sin, I am faithful and just to forgive your sin. Come unto me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. We have that freedom. We have that accessibility. That word confidence literally means openly and freely come into his presence. Under the law, there was a barrier between God's people and himself. The only one who could enter the holy holies of holies was the high priest and then only once a year. In Hebrews chapter 9, we learn that even then the high priest had to enter with blood, which he had to offer for himself first and then for the people. In Hebrews 9 verses 11 and 12, it says this, When Christ came as a high priest of good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that was not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. You see, we have access to our Father without the necessity for another mediator, for there's only one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. We don't have a necessity for a high priest. We know that we can come boldly before his throne and share our hearts. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, verse 15 through 18, I love how Paul states it here. He said, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Adopted sons of Christ. I know that many uh, executives uh, in corporations and, and, and pastors, and when, when their children come into the building, even though they may be somewhat busy, the children generally have access to him. They'll tell their secretaries or the people out in the office, hey, if my kids come in, they get priority. Unless there's something dramatically happening that I just can't break away, I want you to let me know they're here because I want them to have access to me. Listen, that's the same way God treats us. 
We can come before him boldly and freely. We can come and express ourselves, our anger. We can come and express our disappointment. We can express every feeling we have because he already knows what's in our heart and he understands. He created us. He knows us. He knows our circumstances. He knows our frustrations. He knows what we need to be strengthened and encouraged. And he says, don't stay away. Come boldly, freely, and tell me what it is you're struggling with. God wants to hear it because God's the only one that has the answers to it. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence. The same word is used there. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. There's times we have a tendency to go look everywhere else but the one place where we'll find the answers. We're looking for satisfaction in lots of different places and there's only one place to find that. We're looking for some kind of encouragement and strength uh, from all these different places in our world and from people, uh, many who don't even know Christ and there's only one place to go to find that and that's our Lord that's our Father in heaven he wants us to come he wants us to come with boldness and with freedom and to sit down and visit with him a lot of times even though we come and we just blow ourselves out and we just let it loose God is just sitting there smiling and saying I understand I understand where you're at let me now encourage you and strengthen you to go back and get into the game God is a loving father. Don't miss meeting with him. Sometimes it's just the fact that we don't spend enough time with him, that we're not comfortable with him. Sharing with him in that sense is, is kind of uncomfortable because we don't do it enough. The closer we get to him, the more time we spend with him, the more comfortable we'll be in opening up our hearts to him and sharing the things that we need to share. The third thing here in this passage is in the last part of Verse 14 and verse 15. And it says here this. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we've asked of him. Now there's some confidence right there, isn't there? This is being in alignment with the will of God. This seems to be an unlimited statement in a believer's ability to pray and ask God for things we want. But we need to remember that how and what we pray for is evidence of where we are spiritually as believers. This passage clarifies that prayer is not asking for our will, but asking for God's will in our lives. Just read through the scriptures and specifically in the New Testament Everything Jesus did was in the will of the Father. Not my will, but thine, he prayed in the garden. And Jesus was always in alignment with the will of his Father in heaven. When we pray as his children, we ought to pray in alignment with whatever God's will. Even though we don't know it, we don't understand it, we may not even like it, we need to be in the will of the Father because if we ask anything according to our, his will, he hears us. On the surface, it seems to be a promise of unlimited uh, favor. 
But in fact, many times people will quote the passage in John 16, 23 and 24 instead of this one. Because in that passage, it says, In that day you will no longer ask me anything. Verily, verily, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. So we have to understand that when we're looking at different passages concerning prayer and the will of God, we can't just pick one and not the other and not bring them together. We have to sync those together because the Bible never contradicts itself. This is why biblical interpretation is so important. Scripture never contradicts itself. God will never answer our prayers and give us what we need, not just he will give us what we need, not just what we want, and it must be in his will. Now, on occasion, does God give us what we want? God allows us to do what we want in order to help us understand that we need what his will is for us, and those are not happy times. Many times we're seeking things that we want that are not in the Father's will. And if you remember when Israel wanted to uh, have a king like all the other nations, they wanted Saul to be king. And God finally said, okay, if they want a king, we'll give them a king. Even though they were told about all the implications of that, he let them have it. And we know what the end result of that was ultimately. It was certainly part of God's will long term, but it was not what God had wanted for them initially. He wanted to be the only one who was Lord over them. This is why it's so important to understand that when we pray, we pray for his will to be done. And that's not always easy because that means we have to get ourselves out of the way. And here's where I want to kind of transition into where you're going this week and next Sunday as you consider a pastor. Your search team has done a tremendous job. Uh, Pastor Steve has mentioned that. Uh, he, Steve mentioned that we've known each other for 40 years. We met in seminary back in 1982 at Southwestern Seminary. And, uh, and we have stayed connected through the years. And as Steve uh, pastored, uh, started a church and some of the things he went through, uh, we stayed in contact with each other and, and certainly have been uh, closer these last number of years uh, as he came and was your interim. But your search team has done a, a really tremendous job, and I so appreciate them because they have been faithful to the process. They have been faithful to seek what God's will is over what individual will or personal preference might be. The search team and the, and the candidate both have sought the will of the Father who has led them to discover each other. They've met with Lamar, they've met with Lynn, they've asked questions, they've prayed with them, they've presented to the elders, the pastors, the church council. Last week we heard from each one of those leaders who affirmed the work of the pastor search team. And next week you'll be asked to affirm Lamar as your pastor. Now in your bylaws, it states that you are to vote on a pastor presented to you by the search team. Now let me just say this about voting. Um, because I, I'm a little, well, I'm weird in a lot of ways, but I'm a little particular in this area. Um, for me, I know the terminology, I know what it means, because just about every church has this terminology in it. But voting, to me, has more a sense of personal preference. 
I like the way they look. I like the way they speak. I like the way they act. You know, I, I, like, I like them over someone else. It's usually uh, between two things. I like this one or I like that one. We've got an election coming up. And boy, there, there's no question that it's all about personal preference and, and what you want and what you believe should happen. And that's fine. That's the way it has to be. I like to use the term affirm. You're being asked to affirm the work of your search team. Your search team, when I originally met with them, uh, we had a great meeting and I shared some resources with them uh, and helped walk them through some questions about what it looks like and how to have a search team and, and things to be aware of and things to be careful of and things to do and not do. Uh, they embrace that, and I've not been in contact with them after our initial meeting because that's not my place. I just help them kind of get in alignment uh, with a process, and they have diligently and carefully and prayerfully followed that process. They have poured themselves into it, and they've prayed, and they've sought God's direction. And though they've had a, a couple uh, candidates that did not feel led to come here, that's good because that means that somebody was seeking God's will. And if it's not God's will for them to be here, you don't want them here. I believe Lamar and Lynn have been praying about this as well. And God, in a sense, has brought them together. And after the search team senses this and feels God's leadership in it and affirms to them that this is the person that they believe God wants to be here, they have shared that with your elders and with your pastors and with your church council. And last Sunday, they all affirmed the same thing. So the issue for the body of Christ, it isn't that you are, are set aside out of this. It's that, that through your praying individually as families and as a church, seeking the will of God. God, what is your will? Not, as what, what it, not what is my personal preference. God would bring together in unity the outcome. So you're, you're really praying, God, can I affirm the work of the team, and the affirmation of the other leaders in the church? Or do I not sense that this is, is what it should be and I reject that affirmation? So really, you're praying to affirm what God is doing and has done through a lengthy process with the search team and with the pastors and, and uh, the elders meeting with Lamar and them. It's a, a very daunting responsibility. It's a, a responsibility of faith and trust. You elected the team. You asked them to do the work. And now they've given you a direction to move in. And your responsibility now is to pray and seek God's affirmation for you that this is the right person to lead the church. Now, we can look at a lot of preferential things, but I always go back to the story of David. When Samuel was supposed to find that other person to replace King Saul, uh, God told Samuel, go to the home of Jesse, and uh, you will find the next king in Jesse's family. And so he went. And the very first one that they paraded before Samuel, he thought, wow, look at him. He looks like just the right guy to do, uh, the, take on the responsibility to be king. And God said, no, this isn't the right guy. He said, you're looking at the things of man. You're not looking at the heart, which is what God looks at. 
We can never look at the external things. We can never look at the superficial things and try to determine what the will of God is. God knows the heart of man. He knows the heart of a church. God knows who he wants to bring together at the right time. God has always known who's going to be the next pastor here. It's just that now your search team and the elders and and the others have sought to discover that person. They believe they have done that. So your responsibility as you go through this next week is to diligently pray and seek God's affirmation on this. That if you can, as God leads you, to be able to affirm the work and the ministry of your pastoral search team. That is how we are to encourage one another to seek God's will. Come boldly before his throne room. You have questions, you have doubts, you have struggles with all of this. Come before the Father. Share those things with your Father in heaven. Let the Father in heaven through the Holy Spirit speak to your heart and give you the direction you need so that when you come together next Sunday and you're able to listen and hear from Lamar as he will share God's word with you, that you're not looking at the exterior. You're seeking the Holy Spirit to impress upon your heart if this is the man that you believe God wants to be there. So I'm praying for you, and I know there are many other people praying, and we want to continue to pray. But listen, let me, let me just remind you, you have the assurance of your salvation. You have the confidence to come boldly before the throne room of grace. And you are encouraged to come and ask anything according to God's will, not yours. And he will give it to you. He will answer you. And from that and through that, you find joy and you find peace and you find unity in the body of Christ. That's the way it should be, right? Isn't that what we all seek for? Isn't that what we want to have in our life? Peace and joy and strength and happiness and and hope? That comes from the Father. And it comes from the relationship as we come into his presence. As his children, his adopted sons, heirs of the kingdom... And share our hearts with him. And allow the Father to speak to us according to his will and not our will. Father, I thank you for your word this morning because it helps us understand some things about our salvation. About the confidence that we have in coming into your presence through faith in Christ. As children before a father. Knowing that you will hear us. That we can share everything and anything that's on our heart. That you understand when we're mad and angry, when we're upset, when we're frustrated, when we don't have direction. And you will calm us and you will give us the direction that we need as you speak to us and comfort us and sometimes chastise us. Lord, we never want you to give us what we think we want. We truly want what you desire and what you know we need. Because that being in that place, in the center of your will, is more important than anything that we would want in and of ourselves. There is peace and strength and joy in that. I pray, Lord, this morning as, as we close as well, that if 
there is someone who doesn't know Christ, does not have uh, eternal salvation, does not know that when they die they'll be in your kingdom, that, Lord, they have heard the gospel message this morning, that your spirit has reached out to them and drawn them to you, uh, that they sense of their sinfulness, that they can acknowledge that, turn from it, and put their faith in what Jesus did for them on the cross, overcoming sin and death through his death and resurrection that they can pray, receive salvation through Jesus Christ, become one of your children, become a new creation, and have the hope that only you can give them for their life and for eternity. And for your children here this morning, Lord, as this church prepares to make this very important and critical decision concerning pastoral leadership, that you will lead them and unify them in this effort that you will bless those who have gone through all the work and preparation and absolutely believe that this is the man that you have called to lead this church at this time in this place. And that, Father, through that, you will be glorified. For all we do is to lift up your kingdom and to bring glory to your name alone. And we thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, may the Lord bless you. May he encourage you throughout this week. May he strengthen you. May he give you guidance in times of uncertainty. And may, you be, uh, may he be glorified in your life, in your ministry, and in your witness this week. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be dismissed.